Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm J. Dylan Proctor, and you can follow me on Twitter at J. Dylan Proctor. However, I'm not alone here in our studio, Ford Purgatory. I also have two others with me, the first of which is Anthony Alegria. Yep, and later I will have a list of demons for all of our viewing pleasure, and uh, that'll be interesting. Yes, that's going to be a lot of fun. Joining Anthony and myself is Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And we will do a little bit of a warning right now. Please don't try any of this at home as we talk about um, Solomon's key and or the key of Solomon and some of these demons. Probably best uh, not to read those names out loud too much. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about um, starting and not starting church fires. That's not a good way to um, go about that at home. <laughs> yeah, Amanda's sort of niche is how to not start church fires. And yes, um, when we get to some of this stuff, exercise caution. We'll leave it there. We're not going to censor anyone. I mean, people have free will, but use your free will wisely, and we will give you encouragement on how to be wise about that. Anyways, well, what are we going to be talking about today, Amanda? All right, so yes, we're going to be talking about some various things. Our first topic is going to be the, about the first dog uh, from South Korea and his ad campaign, I Am Not Food. Then we're going to talk about some archaeologists archaeologist, and their different finds about the tabernacle from the Old Testament and kind of a little bit of a riff that they're having. And then we'll do a Bible lesson from Colossians. Then we're going to, of course, talk about the demons from the Key of Solomon. And then we're going to conclude with some surprisingly funny Bible verses. Yeah, so it's going to be a fun program. You'll definitely want to hang around for it all. The, the list of demons is going to be fun. Also, these uh, Bible verses are, are going to be a lot of fun. So let's jump right into it today by talking about this article about the South Korean first dog. So this is from Sky News. And it says, South Korean's first dog is not food, as as campaign is launched. So just so everyone is aware, um, Tori the black mongrel was, quote, an abandoned, abused, and raised to be eaten before he was rescued, end quote, in animal rights, Charity says. So as you can see, Tori the black mongrel, he is the dog, which the, in basically the first dog is sort of like the first family, like in the United States, we have the president, and the first lady. Well, the first dog is Korea's equivalent to that, the dog that belongs to, to the first family there. So let's get into this. President Moon Jae-in adopted Tori last year. The black mongrel had been abandoned, abused, and raised to be eaten before being rescued, said Park So-yoon, the president of Coexistence of Animal Rights on Earth, also known as CARE. As part of the campaign, which CARE has organized, soft toys have been made in Tori's likeness bearing the message, quote, I'm not food. Um, so you've got dog toys for dogs to have, which dogs tend to think that toys are food. So that's, that's an interesting twist of things because I'm sure there's some dogs which are going to shred these toy babies. But anyways, back to the article. As part of the campaign, which CARE has organized, proceeds from the sales of the toys, which cost about 20 um, of their currency, about 20 units of currency, will go towards rescuing abused and abandoned dogs. By taking Tori in, Mr. Moon was delivering on a campaign promise to boost awareness of the fast-growing numbers of abandoned animals. The campaign has been launched during a period when Koreans traditionally eat dog meat soup in the belief that it helps beat the summer heat. As people were being encouraged to sign up for dog adoption, Ms. Park said Tori had been transformed since going to live with the president. President Moon Jae-in and his wife Kim Young-suk had said that they are very glad and happy because Tori, Tori has totally changed. 
He looks anxious and sad when they first come home, but to them now he looks very happy and bright. So, here we get the story of a dog going from a shelter pet to being the first dog in South Korea. And we get this great comedy of the fact that there are still a few people who eat dogs. Um, from what I understand, it's mostly older generations who follow this tradition of eating dog meat in their soup to avoid the summer heat. I don't know if that's my first response to the summer heat. What do y'all think? Is that is that y'all's solution? <laughs> summer heat, let's eat some dog. No. Anthony, I know, I know you, whenever we get outside, I mean, people get hot and sweaty. Is that your first solution whenever you go outside and be like, it's just hot, I'm sweating? My solution, dog. Definitely not, especially with soup. Like, I hate eating soup whenever it's hot because then you're extra hot. You know what I mean? Like, that is true. Soup is usually hot. You know, we were out with Charlie the other day. We were outside filming. It was hot. We could have just had Charlie soup there. Charlie the church history dog. So, so yeah, after your filming, did you have to kind of clarify when you went back home for dinner that, you know, when Charlie was going to be there for dinner, he wouldn't be there with some... Uh, a nice Chianti and some fava beans. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Anyways, it's interesting that they, they're trying to address this. So they've got an issue of abandoned animals, and then they've got another issue of people eating animals, which, is, again, those are just sort of an interesting, like, a duality. It almost seems like the eating of the dog might be the solution to the abandoned animals, but they're trying to encourage people. That's not how we're fixing this. We're going to have a better, better way of going past this. I will say, could you imagine, like, with any cultural trend, there's a certain amount of people who just attribute it to, like, snootiness or something. So, like, could you imagine being a bystander and just, like, you know, look at these snooty people thinking that adopting dogs is a new hip, cool thing. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Those millennials. Those millennials. <laughs> All they want to do Won't is take... eat dog. <laughs> they just want to take the dog home instead of eat it. You're just supposed to eat the dog. <laughs> you shouldn't say that. I, 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 I hate to, like... Um, stereotype people because it really is a, a small amount of the people over mm -hmm. there that still eat dogs um and again south korea they're going way out of their way to to try to put an end to this um because dogs they have a purpose last year we we read that article about the the i guess it was a high school science teacher maybe in a middle school science teacher but i think it was high school where he fed the puppy to the turtle mm -hmm. does anybody remember this mm -hmm. Yeah, the one thing that really upset me about that is, again, people were like, oh, well, it's just something in nature that happens. Well, actually, dogs have a purpose. Like, I have a dog. Charlie's great. I know Amanda has a dog. Is Duke good? Yes, Duke is a good Duke is a good boy? Yes. Though he doesn't like looking like Star Wars costumes, from what I understand. <laughs> but, but dogs actually have a purpose. They're designed to be people's friends and people's coworkers. And this is true. I don't really care what worldview you come from. Dogs are our friends and our coworkers, and to eat the dogs is like eating our friends and coworkers, and I, I just can't endorse that. And I'm glad that that people are moving away from that. Anyways, final thoughts before we move on to our next segment. We good? Mm -hmm. Everybody, they're still they're still full after the last meal. <laughs> I think we're good. I think we're good. All right. Well, we'll be back here in a moment. All right, let's talk a little bit about some archaeological news which has recently cropped up. In Shiloh, which is in Israel, there is a location which is associated with a place in the Bible. Again, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that the tabernacle at Shiloh was a thing. If you follow the Nazarene quarterlies, and if you're not familiar with us at Kingdom of the Logos, we're pastors in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm pastor at Jolton Church of the Nazarene. Amanda's at Trinity. 
uh, we, we have some literature that goes around that people use in Sunday school and for educational purposes. Well, in that educational material, we've been talking about Jeremiah. And if you follow Nazarene stuff, you're in the Church of the Nazarene, you've probably heard a little bit about the tabernacle at Shiloh and history repeating itself. Well, so often we don't want to really trust that the things in the past are true. We don't want to trust that history can repeat itself. Everybody says, well, if I can't see it, I can't visualize it, it must not be there. One of the things that we have a problem with is how do we deal with both historical artifacts and how do we relate scripture to history? There are some people say, well, we take everything in its exact literal form. We take sort of the sola scriptura mentality that says everything is a literal thing. And then there's the more expanded version, which some people say, well, parts of the Bible are history, parts of the Bible are wisdom literature, parts of them are oral tradition, and then the New Testament is a little bit different piece in and of itself. And you get people who will kind of parse things out, but yet there's still a lot of mystery on how do we deal with the scripture that we have handed down through us and the history of the real world. Well, recently in Shiloh, they found some interesting archaeological finds, and it's brought light to some really interesting things, but we also find two archaeologists in the midst of this, um, Finkelstein and Stripling, who are a little bit at odds with one another. And again, their odds come from this fact that we can't really figure out how to deal with scripture and history. There's a healthy role of doubt, but we oftentimes have a hard time dealing with that. So let's get right into this so you can find out what I'm talking about. So I'm going to read now from an article by Allegra Thatcher, and this is from Stream. And this is called Archaeological Finds at Shiloh Foster Faith in the Bible. So here's the article. The places and names of the Bible often seem ancient and unpronounceable to modern readers of the sacred text. But what if those names and locations weren't so remote? What if they become part of everyday reality? The Associates for Biblical Research is conducting an archaeological dig in Shiloh, Israel, helping to do just that. Led by Dr. Scott Stripling, the group trains anyone who wishes to participate in unearthing biblical history. The dig began in 2017, and it seeks to show that the Old Testament claims are historically accurate. Their efforts are already paying off. According to CBN News, the team finds approximately 2,000 pieces of pottery a day, as well as coins and other artifacts from the biblical and Roman periods. Pottery is an excellent way of dating a time period, said Stripling, so the team can tell what area they are unearthing. We're dealing with real people, real places, and real events, he continued. This is not mythology. The coins that we excavated today, we're talking about coins of Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Thestus, Felix, Agrippa I, and Agrippa II. The mission is a quest to marry faith and reason by tying physical evidence with the Christian beliefs of the diggers, said the Times of Israel. Many of the diggers are university students with a passion for archaeology and their faith. It's exciting to find ancient things, things that have been just waiting for us for thousands of years, said Abigail Levitt, a student at the University of Pikesville. Archaeology doesn't set out to prove or disprove the Bible, Striplin went on. We want to do is illuminate the biblical text, the background of the text, and set it in a real-world culture to what we call, well, I'm not sure what this next word is. It's throwing me for a loop. So we're just going to move past that. And actually, I don't have my glasses on, so I can't read it. I'm just sort of guessing at a lot of this. Verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. There we go. No idea what that means. So far, the materials they have found match the descriptions of the ancient text. 
The team makes takes a different approach to the leader of the site's last excavation in 1981 through 84. Professor Finkelstein, an Israeli archaeologist from Tel Aviv University, also led expeditions to discover the truth of ancient Israel. One more recent example is Reconstruction Ancient Israel, the Exact Life Science Perspective in 2009 to 2014. But when Finkelstein seems to learn something about the time period of the Bible, he does not expect the biblical text to be accurate in all of its details. Hartz reports that the professor sees the stories about the conquest of the land as part of an ideological, religious, and political manifesto, a masterstroke of a creative copywriter. Stripling and his team, however, believe that the pieces they can find help reveal the historical authenticity of the biblical text. One example, according to Rittmeyer, archaeological design is the 2017 discoveries that suggest the inhabitants of Shiloh left the city in haste. This went with the account of the Philistine raid in Shiloh accompanied by fire. All right, so we're going to end the article right there. And again, that's from Steam or Stream with Allegra Thatcher. So one of the things which is interesting about this is, first off, this doesn't go into all the details of Stripling and Finkelstein. Finkelstein is, is known for saying, specifically when it comes to biblical uh, matters and biblical archaeology says, well, the lack of evidence is proof that there's nothing there. And this goes against what just about anyone in the, even like a, a middle school age uh, science class is taught. Um, Anthony, what is the quote that people are taught at that, that age? The absence of proof is not the proof of absence. Yeah, and that's, that's generally how the best way to come to this stuff is open-minded. And um, there really is this ongoing... I don't want to say it's a feud between Stripling and Finkelstein, but there's different, definitely different worldviews that are there. Um, Finkelstein is very much convinced that you're not going to find anything to substantiate this, whereas Stripling is just saying, well, we're just going to go out and see what we can find to illuminate the biblical text to put things in their cultural and historical context. Anthony. Um, I've looked up a definition for vermicellitude, and apparently it's supposed to be the appearance of being true or real. Oh, okay. So whenever they say, um, so to set it in a real world culture to what we call vermicellitude, I suppose that means to try to set it in a place where it appears to be true. Yes. Right. And that, again, that's Finkelstein and, and Stripling. They really do have different perspectives on this, and as do the, the people who work with them. Um, anyways, one of the things we can definitely learn from this is that the world is way more complicated than we are self-aware. And... There's always more to learn, but we really have a problem waiting to to learn more. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this this find? Well, I think in continuing this idea, like we really have quite sometimes some difficulties understanding our scripture and, and because like you said, we either there are some groups, denominations or sections of Christianity that say scripture is completely literal. Um, even though really no one kind of really follows through 100% on that line of thought. Other people say it's purely allegorical, and there are people that definitely base their life kind of on that perception. And then there's some people who are kind of 50-50 or 40-60 or whatever. And I think it's interesting that the, the one archaeologist, um, not F uh, Finkelstein, but the other one, uh, Stripling, he, he talks about how he really does believe that what they will find will continue to actually uh, create a, a better uh, worldview for us to understand scripture. But at no point does he say that he's going to force their findings 
into validating his belief. So he, even though he thinks that's what's going to happen, right? So he's not breaking kind of the, the operation, the scientific method. He's still wanting to come at this very objectively, but because he trusts that the, the Bible is true, that nothing he finds will kind of be contradictory to that. He's not afraid by investigating, by looking into things that somehow his faith is going to be undone. And I think that's a fascinating way to, to come to these historical finds. I mean, I think there's people that are terrified about the Dead Sea Scrolls or any other kind of finds of, of ancient scriptural texts that they're just all of a sudden we're going to find something that's going to, you know, prove that Jesus didn't exist or something like that. And it's like, no, that doesn't make sense. So yeah, there, there's parts of our scripture that are hard to handle. They're hard to decide. Is this the part we take literally? Is this the part we take allegorically? Is How do we find how much is, you know, grounded in history? How much is maybe was written thousands of years later from the perception of generations afterwards? It's difficult, but yeah. we still come to this investigating and seeking. And we find even in searching and investigating, we never have to fear that somehow God is going to be undone by our questions. Yeah, and... To your point, there's a lot of people who are afraid, oh, the wrong piece of evidence is going to fracture my faith. So they just go ahead and start with the point of saying, oh, well, there's no way that it could ever be real. So that way I'm kind of protected. And then you get people who oppose the Bible will say, oh, there's no way it could ever be real. And they want to squash any evidence that it might be. So you get a lot of people coming at this from a lot of different perspectives. And it really does come from the fact that people, when it comes to matters like this, they can't have the healthy, open mind that says, we're going to trust the evidence to to come. We're just going to trust. We're not going to push anything, but we're just going to be honest about this and let things unfold. Um, especially people within the church, they really have a hard time about this. They either want to read into it too much or they want to shut down or they, they just don't have the, the faith to, to move into it because they're so worried that they might find something contradictory. Um, another thing that's interesting, if you, you read a little bit more of Finkelstein, um, if he's the guy who I think he is, I think he may make an appearance in the the Exodus movie that came out a few years ago. If anybody remembers that, they had a uh, Patterns of Evidence was the name of it. I think he appears in that. I could be wrong. If he's the guy, I think he is. He does. But you find a lot of people who are really just opposed to comparing the Bible at all with history. You get people who are really opposed to that. And it's interesting how much we do have find people in academia who aren't open-minded at all. Uh, we have another article that we looked at back in last November. I think Anthony has it where he can pull it up where there was legends in Turkey that there was an underwater castle in Lake Van. And the locals long had this sort of oral tradition that, hey, there's a castle under the water here. And sort of the academic field said, no, there's no way there could be a castle underwater there. It's just silly and absurd. It's just local mythology. Well, lo and behold, when somebody actually went to investigate this, there was a castle in Lake Van. And it was not very deep either. It was pretty obviously there. So you get this weird disposition that people have, even within academia, where they claim to be open-minded, but they're not. Um, yeah. Anyways, you can send us your, your questions or comments about this on Facebook, or you can tweet me on Twitter about them at Proctor. But let us know what you think about this. How does it change your perspective of the world, seeing something like this find in, in Shiloh, then finding the tabernacle? Or, well, the, the sites correlating with the tabernacle. Again, it would be... Hard to just say, oh, look, here's a remnants of a tabernacle. But yeah, interesting. Interesting stuff. We'll be back here in a moment. All right, now we're going to do a Bible lesson out of Colossians 3. 
Now, for those who are part of Jolton Church of the Nazarene, and those of you who watch the Jolton Church of the Nazarene program online, we are having this podcast be posted in lieu of our normal live stream of the service because we have a Creative Access Missionary, and, well, we can't put the Creative Access Missionary on live internet. It's just really unwise to do. But this is uh, where we're going to be talking a little bit more Bible um, from here and throughout the program. So let's take a look at Colossians 3. If you'd like to f- open up your Bible and follow along with that, Anthony is going to lead us in reading Scripture. So, Anthony, would you go ahead and start in verse 1 of, well, Colossians 3. Yep. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you once, you also once followed, and when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek or J- and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. All right. So when we read through this, there's a lot of saucy things that you read in there and get people really excited. There's still a little bit of a teenager left in all of us, and we want to talk about certain topics. However, as Anthony was reading through this, there was one particular item listed in there which really catches your attention. And as you start to mature in your faith and you start to realize that concepts like idolatry really expand more than that's just obsessing over things, but it's really the things which we start deriving our morality from, which we start letting be the, the new arbiters of, of our, our lenses for the world. When we see this statement... Early in this reading, particularly in verse 5, it says in the English Standard Version, covetousness, which is idolatry. Some will say greed, which is idolatry. We have to ask this question. Why is it that greed or covetousness, why would these things be idolatry? That's a really big question. And that's the one thing I want us to be talking about from Colossians 3. Why would it be that there's a connection between these two. Amanda, what are your thoughts as we read this? All right, so we kind of did a little bit of research on this word covetousness and um, looking at kind of Strong's Concordance and the dictionary that he has um, or that that organization has online. It talks also about covetousness. Greed can actually also be translated as extortion. And so I think the reason we kind of go from, so we think of covenant usually as wanting something, right? So I see someone has a nice shiny car and I covet that because I want the nice shiny car. Jealousy. Yeah. Or it's green in the sense I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the nice shiny car or whatever it is, whatever the example is. But anyways, but I think when we hear kind of this word of extortion, we're moving maybe more into a place where we see the connection with idolatry. It's not just simply wanting something, but it's actually wanting that something so bad that you're willing not only to hurt somebody, but then you can use that something to hurt other people or to manipulate people. And I think that's really the heart of idolatry is manipulation, is I'm going to try to exercise some kind of power 
so that I can get what I want. So, um, I mean, and this is what we see often when we hear like, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and it says, don't worship any graven images. We're like, oh, we're good, right? Because, you know, we don't go to a little statue and, and pray to it. But really what that is saying in its historical context is people would manipulate the graven image so that they could get the God to do what they wanted. You know, if I'm nice to the little piece of wood, then the God's going to give me a good harvest. There's no real connection. There's no real relationship. And so when we say that covenantness is idolatry, what we're talking about is I'm going to manipulate people. I'm going to manipulate language. I'm going to manipulate objects. I'm going to even try to manipulate God to get what I want so that I, everyone else can be below me. And so this, this I think, in, in the context of this chapter, Paul is writing to the church of Colossia, in Colossians that's saying, listen, that is how the world works. The world manipulates you are called to trust and to love. And you will find that in trusting and loving, God will provide everything you, ne you need. All right. So there's a couple of things I, I want to throw out there. And I love that there's multiple of us here because you're going to get some different perspectives. And I want to start off saying I don't disagree with anything Amanda said, but I want to take it in a little bit different direction. When we think of idolatry, I know you brought up the Ten Commandments. One of the lessons that I have learned as I get older and I get a little wiser in the faith is that things like taking the Lord's name in vain, creating idols, isn't just about using a swear word here or there, though it, though it can be that. It's not just about saying, well, I love football a little bit too much, but it's about realigning what is the source of, of the divine will in your life. Where do you find life? Where do you find purpose and meaning? And particularly in this context of Colossians, it opens up saying, you know, don't store up in the world around us. It's something we find a lot in the New Testament and instead invest in things that are above. In fact, verse 1 Begin saying, if you have then been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. So it starts off saying, you should have the mentality that looks to invest in things not of this world. You're looking to invest in even things like virtue, which can be used in this world, but they're derived from somewhere else. In other words, your source of God has changed when you are investing in idolatry. So yeah, you can like basketball a little bit too much, but when you really make an idol of, out of something, you're saying, well, my source of purpose, my source of virtue, my source of of divine will, it is coming from something other than God. And it can be extremely unreliable to do this. And again, I think there's a very practical lesson to be learned from the Ten Commandments telling us not to, to take the Lord's name in vain, don't create false engraven images, because like Amanda said, say you've got something sort of stereotypical of the ancient world, you've got a temple you go to, or you've got a, a little wooden idol, you know, you you do the right gift for the idol, you you please it. Um, you make a little offering to it, and then it gives you a good harvest. Well, the reality is, is that's unreliable. It is unreliable to do that. We, we now know you're, you're not going to get anything better harvest if you make the right offering to that little piece of wood. It's unreliable, so it's unwise to do that. But going back to extortion, if people are extorting, they are not investing in things above, but, well, you're really investing in things below. You're investing in things. Very below. <laughs> yes, very below. You're investing in things below for sure. And therefore, you've realigned what is God in life. And you're kind of making yourself God in that moment. You're saying, now I'm the source of transcendent meaning and purpose. And my will is the new divine will. And you have realigned the entire cosmos by your own standards. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Anthony? So I agree a lot with what both of y'all said. But so that being the case, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because it is kind of a gray area and um so just to give the gray some more gray i'm gonna do that <laughs> the um so for me uh 
you said that you were um, making yourself God in that moment and stuff. But whenever I look at greed and then, for instance, look at the um, evil desires and the impurity or the fornication and some of the other things listed, that doesn't separate, um, you know, pleasing the self. And so especially like, you know, evil desire, that is specific and that's, you know, directly relating mm -hmm. to what you want. Um, so I'm not sure that I would say that that's the reason why greed is marked as the one that's idolatrous there, which that is what seems to be the case in the verse that greed is the one specifically that's marked out as idolatrous while the rest are sinful. I mean, they're all sinful, but greed right. is the one that's marked out specifically as idolatrous. And that's kind of what we're putting to question here. Right. Well, um, again, I think it's not just greed in the sense of jealousy. I think we can already pretty much find jealousy articulated in, in many other places. I think this is a little bit different concept. I think Amanda's right in pointing to this probably being better translated as extortion. This really is something where you are moving into the means of manipulating the lives of others. In other words, God is supposed to be the one who arbitrates the, the will and the virtue of the world. God's nature is to be reasonable. God is the one who, who has reason and rationality. He gives us virtue. When we take ourselves to the place of extortion, we are now placing ourselves in a way where we're the new arbiter of all that for other people. Like, again, indulging in sexual impurity, yeah, it's a sin, and yeah, you might manipulate one person, but you're not realigning the whole cosmos to, to manipulate people to do your own will. You may be doing that with a few other people, um, but you're not doing it with, with, you're not creating a massive structure for that. And the same with some of these other sins. You're not really realigning the whole world where you are the new decider you're the new everything um yeah but i'm not sure that uh i would mark that as just what is idolatrous because what's idolatrous isn't just the self it can also include things that are not yourself yeah and um the the other things you are still act well you know assuming that you are operating underneath the knowledge uh well you are still choosing your own will over to your point it's it's not everything that is idolatrous, but this is not saying that it's all of idolatry. It's not saying that extortion alone is idolatry. It's yeah. just saying extortion is a form of idolatry. That's true. And that's, that's my point. What I'm saying is here is it's putting yourself at the place of God. It's not mm. all forms of idolatry. Yeah, you can make the government out to be your idol. People make celebrities out to be idols. We were talking about this last week, how people have invested way too much into celebrities as being the no moral authorities. But it's putting yourself at being the head of a system. And that's really why I think that this is specifically a, a form of idolatry. And again, that is derived from us understanding this as extortion. Amanda? Well, and I think just to kind of pull us back maybe from just the, that specific word or even this all these phrases is where we hear in our, the last few verses that we read, putting on the new self, self, which is renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator, that in this there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, sky, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is in all and... Uh, is all and in all. I think we see all this in that context, right? So there's a change in how the world now is going to work. That no longer do we have to fight and manipulate others, whether that is any of those things on that list, short or small. Because like Paul writes lots of lists in all of his letters. And so there's quite an extensive thing that we can look at and say these are some pretty bad things. But what he's saying is now the world's being renewed into something better where we don't have to manipulate people, we don't have to manipulate idols, we don't have to manipulate um, systems of virtue or law. We, we find value and worth and hope and who we are to be in the image of Christ. Yeah, and to 
that point. We do find a lot of list in Paul's stuff. But to your point about how the world is new, even what we were reading there in the end of the verse, where we get this idea that that through Christ, we all basically have a new new understanding of the world. We have a new value. And when we were getting prepared for the show, Amanda brought up how whenever we see these themes in the New Testament that there really is no Greek or Jew or something to that effect, it's saying that, that, that people's new identity is in Christ. This is telling us really how we should value people. It's not saying that people are 100% uniform, but it's saying we should learn to value people well. And really, that's an overarching theme in this entire passage here is don't value the things of the world. Instead, start valuing the things from above. And that's the best starting place we have from that. And especially as we come to, to Christ, we find that. Well, send me your, your questions and comments at J. Dylan Proctor, and we'll be back here in a second. Let's talk about the Key of Solomon. This may be a text which you have never heard of, and that is probably a good thing. The Key of Solomon is this bizarre book which possibly originates from the 14th century. We really don't know, but it's sort of consistent with the strange books of that time. But anyways, it is a book which is attributed to King Solomon from the Old Testament, though, again, we don't really know that it is him and probably not. But it's a book which is a collection of like mystical, magical things and even demons. Today, we're going to look at something called the Lesser Book of Solomon, which is, again, a subset of this book. And we're going to, or the Key of Solomon, excuse me, um, the lesser book of, so of the lesser key of Solomon is, and we're going to look at this in the list of demons that it has included therein. It's a very interesting thing. Um, we've actually got some up where we can pull up for you. And again, this is one of the things where we say, we're not going to censor you, but we advise you to not try this at home. Um, it's got some weird stuff in here. And just to give a preliminary warning before we get into the preliminary invocation, we do not advocate for any of this, but it is something which is interesting for you to be aware of. So the book opens up with an invocation, which again, this is trying to deal with evil spirits and it starts with invoking one referred to as the bornless one. Again, I don't at all by any stretch of the imagination endorse when doing this, but it is interesting nonetheless. What I want us to do now is to skip down to a, a lower section in this book that is the Shimon Forish, Shimon Forish, where it has a list of spirits which supposedly King Solomon uh, conversed with. Now, I want us to look at this, and again, we're going to have a little bit of comedy of this because these demons, these spirits, they really don't seem like they've got the whole stuff worked together. So I'm going to read through this, and I'll let Amanda and Anthony react to it, and we'll just see how things are going. So the first spirit we have listed is Baal. All right, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you've heard of Baal and Baalism, but according to the Key of Solomon, it's a little bit stranger than what you might expect. So here's the description from the Key of Solomon of Baal. Baal is the first principal spirit. He is a king ruling in the east, called Baal. He maketh thee go invisible. He ruleth over 66 legions of infernal spirits. He appeareth in diverse shape, sometimes like a cat, sometimes like a toad, and sometimes like a man. Because that is not suspicious at all. Sometimes all of these forms at once. Again, seeing the cat-toad-man crossover, it would never be suspicious. He's very good at being incognito, this particular demon is. But here is his character. This is his character, which is used to be worn as a lamin before him who calleth him forth, or else he will not do thee homage. All right, so 
Bail is the first demon here, and evidently if you, you get involved with Bail, it makes you invisible. Again, this is some creepy, and we are going to go ahead and say this, evil stuff, not good. We're not endorsing this by any stretch of the imagination. But what do you all think about Bail? The cat-toed man who somehow makes you invisible. Any My thoughts? thing is like, you know, Solomon, pretty wise guy. Um, who does he think needs to be told that this thing is a demon? <laughs> who needs to be told that the toad cat man is a demon? Yes. Yeah, there's not a lot of wisdom that should have <laughs> needed to be used in this, this interaction. Uh, I know we were talking about earlier, there does seem to be a disconnect. He makes you invisible. Why? Like, how is that his superpower? We're not sure. Um, and I just like the, it's just, all of this is just so weird. Um, and like he rules over 66 legions. It, there's just, it's just so much randomness. Yeah, it is random. And this is why it's like dualistic in a bit. You might say dualism is when you've got two different sort of worldviews trying to coexist that are totally inconsistent with one another. Like I get bail, I get bailism. But why does he make you go invisible? Like, where does that come from? It's not logically deductible from. Well, he is the bail. principality of the East. <laughs> what is that? And then, well, <laughs> you're not letting me. Oh, sorry. Then he makes you invisible. Yeah, those <laughs> don't logically come from one another. Anyways, let's go on to demon number two Agrius or Agares. The second spirit is a duke called Agrius. He is under the power of the East and cometh up in the form of an old fair man. Riding upon a crocodile, carrying a goshawk upon his fist, and yet mild in appearance. Because nothing says mild in appearance <laughs> like, like a riding, crocodile. yeah, riding a crocodile in a town. <laughs> nothing says mild like that. Utterly I mean, calm. He's oh he's got gosh. the utmost of class. Um, <laughs> you can just see him. It's like the the person who rolls up in their nice car. Like you find that a lot of people who own things like Corvettes and and nice cars. They tend to actually drive them slow. They like creep along, kind of nice and smoothly in a parking lot that's how this guy is he just rolls along with this crocodile <laughs> nothing to say here i'm a nice mild friendly person anyways so he is mild in appearance he maketh them to run that stand still he bringeth back runaways he teaches all languages or tongues presently he hath power also to destroy dignities both spiritual and temporal and calls earthquakes he was of the order of virtues he hath under his government 31 legions of spirits, and this is his seal or character, which thou shalt wear as a lemon before thee. Okay, so again, totally random stuff. Like, why 31 legions? Like, where do these numbers come from? I don't understand. There's there's not any, like, logical deduction to this that I'm aware of. If somebody knows more about this history than I do, please, please do. But again, he's described as being a mild person, even though... He, he makes can, people run away. <laughs> he makes some run away, and those who already ran away. Again, he wants it to happen. As if you run away before he comes, he makes you come back. <laughs> the crocodile will get you. So if you're here, if you're still, he makes you run away. If you've already run away, you're coming back. You just can't out, outdo this guy. And then he causes earthquakes. Mild. Mild. My thing is like, what's up with this advertising here? It's like, you know, after I tell you these things, make sure to brand this guy's logo. Like, that's how you... <laughs> That's oh, how you yeah. get to be friends with him. Yeah. Here's here's his brand. I, I, yeah, I agree. It's like the, um, I guess, 14th century version of somebody giving, like, a plug for their content. Like, <laughs> in case, should wear the logo. Wear yeah, the merch. <laughs> wear the merch in case, in case me being arriving on the crocodile wasn't enough for people. Remember to 
to get the merch. Um, anyway, so let's go on to the next one. Um, Visago. So the third spirit is a mighty prince, being the same nature of Aguirre's. He is called Visago. This spirit is of a good nature, and his office is to declare things past and to come. And he did discover all things hid or lost. And he governeth 26 legions of spirits. And this is a seal. So he, he seems more appropriately named as mild than Agrius. However, he's like the captain obvious of, of spirits. He's like, oh, that thing is past. That is the past <laughs> tense. Like I, that's like his thing. He's, he's good at hide and seek and, and is captain obvious of time. Always, always fun skills to have. <laughs> and evidently he needs 26 legions of spirits to, to declare so, so, things as past yeah, he, tense. He's not as important as a... Agarius, he got Agarius got thirty one. So yeah, you know it's weird. This is like he seems like a reasonable being or whatever. But like you know, the prelude to this, the page right before this is the book of evil spirits. Right. So like you know, here's our evil spirits. But this one's a good nature. <laughs> but this yeah. one's of a good nature. And and don't kid me wrong. We are all saying that these are demons. Nobody is advocating for these. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. to clarify, we've got to throw that in like once per saying this. Like nobody get a sound bite for this and say we're endorsing demons. Please. I know we're gonna have to like include it as an introduction to every sentence. Introduction to every <laughs> sentence. We're not endorsing this, but for your information. Alright, so the next one, number four, and this is the last one we're going to do today, is Semigena or Gemigen. So the fourth spirit is Semigena, a great marquis. He appeareth in the form of a little horse or donkey. And then in the human shape doth he change himself at the request of the master. He speaketh with a hoarse voice. He ruleth over 30 legions of inferiors. So in the past we got infernals, but now we get inferiors. So he ruleth over 30 legions of inferiors. He teaches all liberal sciences and giveth account of dead souls that died in sin. So we get the, like, college professor over here. Like, he teaches all liberal sciences. The next evil demon we have today. Um, that's oh all it gosh. says that he does. And he gives account of those who have died in sin. And his seal is this, which should be worn before the magician when the invocator, or when the magician is the invocator. So, And I love how go. it's like, when he's the invocator, etc. Like, just one item, and then, yeah, you know what the rest is. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is It is implied at the end. Like, when you're doing your magic stuff, you know, you know, etc. As one does. As one does. Just like the assumptions of this book. Like, it's so casually put there. Like, everybody's got their legions of demons, you know. Some have legions of the infernal, some have legions of the inferior. Everybody's got their legions. Here's one part of a sequence. All right, you've got the trend. Like, yeah, you, you, know, you know the rest. You're good. And again, we're not endorsing any of this. <laughs> they are evil. All bad. Please do not um, summon these up. But know that this stuff is out there because there, there are people who do get into this. This stuff is out there. Um, interesting stuff. Um, I actually literally, in my other job, ran into someone who had two books, which this is considered um, some book of grimoire or whatever. And grimoire. he had two. And I, that's actually where I learned the word grimoire was from the back of that book. And he had two books like this. And so, like, this stuff, like, people look into this stuff, people read it, nobody knows why. Yeah, and this is one of the things is the church, a lot of times we'd be like, oh, that's off limits. Don't you dare ever talk about this stuff. Look, if we're going to deal with the stuff in the world, we're going to deal with the sin in the world. We need to know what's out there. This is one of those things where you got to be wise about it. Again, don't go at home and invocate the bornless one or whatever it was earlier. 
but do know that this stuff's out there and people take this stuff uh yeah, take I, it deep. I think there's a, I know we're kind of laughing at some of these aspects of it. And, and like, we, we hear about this and we're kind of like, don't be the first five minutes of a Supernatural episode. Um, and, and so, yeah, there, there is an element of humor to all this because we, we see it as something that's kind of silly. But there is, there are dark and evil things in our world. And we should take those seriously. And we shouldn't laugh at all of it. And understand that there are people who are captivated by these dark forces. And so we, as as Christians... We need to be informed and we need to be under, understanding and we need to laugh at the silly stuff for sure, but also to have a healthy respect of understanding this stuff is best kept in the fiction section. Yeah, and to the to the matter of a reality, look, in these demons here, some of them roll into town on a crocodile. Okay, nobody really, I don't know anybody be like, oh, look at my new friend. He's a frog mixed with a cat and a person like if anybody's seen that, you'd be like, hold up a second. This, no, no, no. <laughs> like, you know, every instinct in you is going to be like, no. But the reality is, is, is evil is something which actually does hide. It doesn't always come into town on a crocodile. Um, and usually the things that come into town on a crocodile are probably not serious. It's probably some sort of theater. But evil does hide itself in reality. Anthony? Any final thoughts before we wrap up this segment? Nope. You good? Amanda, what about um, you? No, I think that was good. All right, y'all. Again, be beware. We'll leave it there. And we're going to come back. Um, the last thing we're going to do today is, is talk about some interesting Bible verses. And welcome back. Now we're about to start to begin our funny verses section. So here goes. Mark fourteen fifty two. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And here's a picture for your viewing pleasure. All right. Now, this was supposed to be Bible verses, which are surprisingly funny, though I think this one you can anticipate being funny. Um, when I was in college, when I was studying um, theology, we used to always do like group projects and there would always be like the lazy person who doesn't contribute to the group. One of the ways that we would prank people is we would have them scheduled to read something and we would just put like read Mark 1452. <laughs> And like people who weren't prepared, they would like pull it out and read this and like, boom, you've been, you've been had. Um, so this one's really not surprising, but it is. It's random. It is sort of random, but in the context, they're erasing, um, they're arresting Jesus, not erasing Jesus. They're arresting Jesus. And this dude is there. They grab him by the waist cloth and he gets away. Yeah. All right, any so, thoughts on that? No, I don't, I don't know what he would say. Yeah, I looked I looked up the passage. I'm like, this is an utterly just kind of random. I mean, you're in the middle of such um, horrific things that are about to happen to Jesus. It's very serious and, and somber. And then all of a sudden, there's just like two or three verses about some dude, random guy, doesn't even get named. Nope. But he just ran, runs away naked. You're like, what? Is, the, like, what was Mark's point with this? Like, was that just something? Like, Peter was telling him the story and was like, oh yeah, and there was this random naked dude. Gotta get the streaker. Mark's just in like, there. all right, yeah, that, that this is important yeah. information for generations later to know. Yes, <laughs> it's one of those things where like, this is why the Bible is at, at least partially historically accurate. Nobody can make that up. Like, <laughs> this is one of those. Going to take the time to add this to the story. It's like, all right, yeah, this will add some. Something to our political movement. Like nothing. No, there's nothing that's going to happen there. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it really does. Um, yeah, it's one of those details that you just don't make up. 
You can't but challenge it. This poor man's shame will be known for all eternity. That's and that's the only thing that'll be known about him is his shame. Just some naked. I mean, he got away, right? Yeah. I mean, he did get he did away. It. This is good. Naked. All right. Next verse, Anthony. Micah two eleven. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, "I will preach to you of wine and strong drink," he would be the preacher for this people. <laughs> All right, so here we get the prophet coming along to saying, look, if a man goes about and just says nothing, I'm going to preach, you know, drunkenness, then that's what sometimes people want, which is, this one is really not so much funny. So it is a best statement about humanity, about how people like the the things which are just tailored to what they want to hear. They like the, the show. They like the comedy of life. Which, again, there's nothing wrong with, with being entertained. But when it comes to moral issues, a lot of times people prefer the the thing which will tell you what you want to hear and sort of softens things for you than, than the hard truth. I don't know. That's kind of what I take away from it. Amanda, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I can see, I guess, it's more serious implications. But there is something kind of humorous of, like, the guy going around uttering wind and lies. And then he's going to be your preacher. Like, yep. it's basically, he's like, yeah, if you, if you want to hear this, then sure, this is this is what you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next verse, Anthony. Proverbs twenty six eighteen. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death. This one is unfortunate that we don't have a picture of this, because um, I wonder what a flaming arrow of death would look like. As opposed to the flaming arrow of life. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the, the question is, what does it look like? What is special about it? For people who like video games, usually when you get towards the end of like a Legend of Zelda game, you get like the the light arrows, which have some sort of thing. But what what does it look like? Like what is what is the arrow of death, and I'm, why is it not just an arrow? It's a good question. I'm more concerned with the maniac. I don't like I, maniac doesn't appear a lot in the Bible, so whenever you're thinking about this guy shooting flaming arrows of death, I'm just imagining this dude just randomly going to town with his bow. But in a case. Yeah, he is going to town, which, again, um, going back to, like, G.K. Chesterton, if you haven't read Orthodoxy, please do, um, particularly the, the passage there on the lunatic or the whole chapter on the lunatic. Um, the maniacs in the world, they do cause a lot of chaos and destruction. Um, so maybe it's just saying that any shooting arrows coming out of the, the maniac, they're bound to be of death. So that's sort of the existential state of that. All right, All right so Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature all right i've got to be honest this verse itself is not that funny by itself but the artwork that goes with this <laughs> is just absolutely amazing um so if you're just listening to the podcast do check out the video content so you can see this um so we have a picture from a tumblr blog uh, bible illustrated and i'm starting to doubt if the tumblr blog is serious or not because some of this artwork well, we'll just let it see. I'm not cool. going to question their faith. I'm not going to rule judgment on this, but we you have look revisited at it, them three times now, so they're doing something. They are doing something. <laughs> it's at least entertaining. It is entertaining. We'll give them that. There's an uneven landscape, possibly an octopus, huge, gigantic Mario mushrooms, um, and vegetation that just doesn't belong on trees. All right. Well, he's described the landscape, but hadn't even got to the content. So we've got a picture here of of what is supposed to be God. <laughs> Um, I guess by the lines coming out of his mouth, sort of speaking, breathing life into this man who Amanda noticed that he's coming up out of mud. When I first looked at this, I wasn't 
totally sure what was going on. Um, you thought he looked a bit like some mythological creature, no? Yeah, like a fawn or a centaur. Like, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't fully grasp that his legs were still muddy. I was thinking, like, what? I mean, I didn't even know this this had anything to do with creation, right? Because it's just so random. And then I mistook the, the tree branches back behind the man I thought were horns. So I was trying to figure out why this <laughs> horned man with, like, furry goat feet. Right, with a turban. The what only, was going on? The only clothing this man has, and again, he just came out of the earth. Why does he have headwear on? Doesn't make sense because that's he's naked except for the headwear, and he's got some different skin colors. You know, I had just written it off, but Amanda's correct. He has like sort of all racial colors, skin tones there, though he's also the same color as the tree behind him in one place too. So that's that's a lot to look at. And in the middle of it, we've got a dove with what looks like an omega, and. Perhaps it's my vision. I don't know, but I can't tell what the other symbol is. And I'm familiar with a lot of symbols, but it's eluding me. So you've got this really bizarre piece of artwork. And that's that's sort of (laughs) surprisingly entertaining. Let's go on to the next verse. Yeah. First Chronicles 19.4. So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved them, cut their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. All right. So this one is a classic. The mooning that is forced upon you. So we've had two people shamed um, by by the removal of pants in in this, or two groups of people. We had the the party there in Mark where that the man stripped of his loincloth and sent away naked. And now we've got these people, these men, the envoy there together, and we've got an interesting piece of artwork. Um, it's not like a scandalous piece of artwork. You just see them having their clothes cut. And their beards being trimmed. So they're being shaved and thrown away to go shame themselves before the world. I mean, that actually would be a very shameful experience. If I was part of an envoy and I got sent back with my butt exposed to the dry air and shaven. I mean, I look shaven already, but. (laughs) Some translations have them saying that they are just cut, their clothes are cut off in the middle. So who knows what is actually meant by this. Um it was obviously meant to do some embarrassing work for people, and who knows how much of them were shaved. I mean, at that point, do you still wear the top of your clothing? I mean, <laughs> just go for it. Do you just go for it? Who knows? It, it is odd. It is, and I think that just reveals to us how much of our scripture is just so human, right? Because these are real people interacting with their world and their culture, and sometimes bad things happen, really embarrassing and crazy things, and and yet they're in the midst of this fantastic story of a God who calls them. This um, is <laughs> yeah, like everybody's like stress dream, like going to school without clothes on. Now we've got like the, the biblical version of that. Uh, you get, we're giving, we're giving bullies ideas over here. Yeah. This is the bullies ideas. Shave them and strip them below the waistline and send them on their way. I like how in this artwork also the people who are like cutting the beards and cutting the, the clothes are just like, they look so smug. Yes. And then, like, the king's over there just like, ah-ha. <laughs> what, it, this, this, what, this story, like, if this wasn't in scripture, I would tell you, I would be like, if I heard the story, I'd be like, yeah, this was created by, like, some middle school boy. <laughs> like this, yeah. This oh, absolutely. Crazy. And what's funny is all, if you'll notice the facial expressions of the people in this art, um, the there's basically, I'll describe the painting like this. You've got a couple of men who are having their, their basic lower half of their clothes cut off. They're being shaved. And the people shaving them and cutting their clothes look so smug. They're just so happy to be doing this. There's a king standing opposite of them in the room pointing at them and sort of laughing, but he's not looking at them. He's looking at people standing behind the king. 
the figures behind the king look so embarrassed. They look so embarrassed by this. The king looks pretty happy. Well, uh, he's not really a king, but the the sort of kingly portrayed figure here, he looks so happy. The figures, they look very embarrassed. Like, and then, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, they're like, this is this is making us uncomfortable. And then these smug cats over here, they're like, oh, yeah. We're going to shame y'all. Oh. Anyways, that's our, our program today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed us. Um, and hopefully the pitchforks won't come out of us. We, we try to do a little bit of comedy, enjoy life in the church, um, stimulate our minds to learn some things, learn about the archaeological stuff going on in the world, even learn about some crazy, bizarre stuff like the Key of Solomon. Um Amanda, would you go ahead and, and yeah. send us out so, today? Yeah, we hope you enjoyed our content. Um, please, um, we hope you like and share what we have. You can also subscribe to our channel on YouTube, and we're on Facebook. Dylan is on Twitter. And we're also doing podcasts on things like SoundCloud and iTunes. So we hope that you share and explore all of our content, and we hope that you have a blessed day.